I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome our very special guest to the podcast today. I'm sure many of you have seen her in her role as CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent or as an on-air reporter for CNBC since 2006. In 2013, she created and launched the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list she oversees that highlights private companies transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. Now, she can add author to her long list of accomplishments. Her debut book, When Women Lead, is out now. It reveals the key commonalities and characteristics that help top female leaders thrive as they innovate, grow businesses, and navigate crises. Please welcome to the podcast a truly inspiring woman and my friend, Julia Borston. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. I think you're a truly inspiring woman. So right back at you. Thank you so much for having me. You're so kind. I'm excited to have you on here. And I have had the pleasure of knowing you for some time now. And I am so excited to be able to share your insights and wisdom with all of our listeners today. So I want to start at the beginning. You graduated from Princeton University with a bachelor's degree in history. How did you make that pivot to media and journalism? What what role did your interest in history play in that pivot? So I had always worked on the newspaper. I was one of those kids who worked on the newspaper in high school. I was an editor on the Daily Princetonian in college. And working on the newspaper was just that extracurricular that I knew I always was going to do because I loved the feeling of being in a newsroom and collaborating with my friends. But I didn't think I was going to go into the news business. I really was interested in international relations. And when I graduated college, I actually got into the London School of economics to to study international relations. But I thought, hey, let me take a year off, a little break between um, college and grad school, and I'll go work at a magazine in New York. At the time, it was 2000. The magazine industry was booming before the market crashed. And I thought it would be really fun to do this thing that had always been a hobby as a job just for a year. I'll try it out for a year. And I applied to a bunch of magazines, and the best offer was from Fortune Magazine to be a, a reporter. It turns out I was the last person hired before that market crash in in 2020. And I had the best education in business news that I ever could have gotten. And I fell in love with it. I didn't know that I would love business news, but I had these amazing mentors who taught me not only how to tell a story, but how to use the lens of business news to tell some of the most important stories that were happening in the world. And I just got, I got so lucky to have these amazing mentors. And you clearly like to be in the middle of everything. You've been in the news cycle. You've been at CNBC for 16 years. And as you said, you've been a journalist even longer. So in your current role, you cover all things content. I watch you religiously, including the media giants, the disruptive force of digital distribution and tech, of course. What what interests you about those spaces and industries? Well, what's been so great, and the reason I love being a journalist is because the stories keep changing, right? So the the media industry has transformed dramatically since I started as a young reporter at CNBC in 2006. And so I've only had two jobs, right? I was at uh, Fortune Magazine for six years. I've been at CNBC for 16 years. And it is really unusual to have so few jobs in a 23-year-long career. But the reason I've been in my jobs for so long and I've been at CNBC for so long 
is that there's so much change and so much opportunity to cover these dynamic changing industries and also be entrepreneurial within CNBC. So I started off covering media um, and that's what brought me from New York out to Los Angeles. And then I started covering social media, which was a really nascent industry. Um, and no one was really covering Facebook when my brother was in college at the time. And I was hearing about um, how this was this amazing tool that was connecting people and, and could, could end up taking off. And he was, my brother was right. And I ended up um, really pushing to cover social media. And that led from social media to technology. And what's so interesting is these things that originally felt sort of siloed, right? There was media, there was social media, and then there was tech. They've all really come together as we've seen these industries converge. Apple now, you know, owns rights to, to the sports rights, um, to MLB, to, to baseball. You have Amazon, that's a tech giant, but also um, not only has NFL rights, but is creating all this content and invested in Lord of the Rings, the most expensive you know, TV series ever made. And I say TV, but we're not even talking about TV anymore. So I think it's been fascinating over the course of my career to watch all these different industries converge and try to transform and transition to meet consumers where they are and also keep up with the fast changing pace of technology. And there's a lot going on. So how do you seek out the stories that you really feel are worth sharing with all of that that's that's going on in the industry? Well, there's so many different pieces of my job. So I have my, my day job and that's sort of keeping up with the news of the day and whether it's Elon Musk and Twitter or it's earnings, it's those things you know you need to cover. These are like core to the news cycle. For those, I'm always on the phone with sources. And I actually have to say from a pandemic perspective, I feel really lucky to have gotten to a certain point in my career before the pandemic hit because it at that point, I had already developed sources. And um, and so I could just pick up the phone and I call people and I spent a lot of time on the phone calling or texting sources to try to figure out how to advance the story. What's the thing that our viewers need to understand? What's the big picture that investors need to be aware of? Um, so there's that piece of it. And then there's the opportunity that I always look for to tell a big picture story, what we call like a step back. So maybe it's going into the holidays. What is going on with um, you know social shopping? Is this going to be the year that social commerce takes off. And what does that mean for retailers? What does that mean for the social platforms? What's going on with tech regulation? So I always love those opportunities to take a step back and do really in-depth analysis because I feel like it's so easy for all of us to get caught up in the day-to-day -day that I want to make sure we're taking that breath and saying, where are we now? Where are we going? And what is the sum of the, the ton of headlines that we've all been digesting in the very busy news cycle over the past days or weeks or whatever it is? And you also, in addition to all that you do day to day, you help launch the network's Closing the Gap series. And I want to talk about that. So it covers companies and individuals working to close gender and diversity gaps. What compelled you to launch that series? So um, it was interesting because, you know, I, I always noticed in, in business, starting from when I was, um, you know, 21 years old at Fortune magazine, that women were obviously in the minority, right? Right now, female CEOs represent 8% of the Fortune 500 CEOs. And that is an all-time high. That is an all-time high. And I was also seeing when it came to venture capital funding, over the past decade, female founders have gotten about 3% of all VC dollars every year. That's on average. Last year, 2021, it dropped to 2%. So that's another crazy stat. So I was just seeing the fact that these women were exceptional. And I also was seeing that 
After covering a lot of the Time's Up and Me Too movement, there was so much focus on what people were doing wrong. I saw in my beat a lot of the CEOs who ran media companies and tech companies, they were kicked out for misbehavior. Um, and I could make a laundry list of the number of companies I covered that saw, saw management turnover because of Me Too and Time's Up. But what I wanted for our viewers for CNBC was not just to do those reactionary headlines, but to focus on the positive. That whole Me Too Time's Up movement revealed that there were problems in business. But at the same time, there were companies, there are companies that are taking actionable steps, you know, you know, steps that can be re replicated to close gender and diversity gaps. And I was hearing about these stories and I wanted to make sure that the rest of the business world knew about them. So it kind of started off with a look at companies like PayPal or Salesforce that were creating systems to eliminate pay gaps, but also eliminate promotion gaps. Um, we looked at groups of women, such as this group of uh, angel investors who call themselves, six women call themselves the hashtag angels in Silicon Valley. And they're trying to figure out how to enact systemic change. And one thing that I think is so important is understanding that closing these gaps is not just a good thing to do or the right thing to do, but it's incredibly positive and valuable for business. So I love telling positive stories. I'm an optimistic person. I, and I tell plenty of negative stories just being a reporter, but I wanted to find opportunities to tell those positive stories and closing the gap is a framework to do that. It's a great way. And I, I love that you say it's something that people can replicate, yes. right? Other companies yes. can think about what's yeah. going on. So so what what's the future of closing the gap? And, I, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, because you've been at CNBC a long time, that initiative differentiates CNBC. So talk about the future and how you think it differentiates from other networks. Well, I think CNBC is differentiated for all sorts of reasons. Number one in business news, no doubt. And I think we are differentiated because not only of the quality of guests who come on our network, but also the depth of conversations we have with them. And just in terms of the news, I mean, there's no one else who does what CNBC does. And I also am so impressed at CNBC, not just by my colleagues on the TV side, but we have this amazing team of CNBC.com that has been become a massive force in digital news. So very proud of all my colleagues. Um, but in terms of what's next for closing the gap, CNBC partners with a number of organizations. We partnered with Catalyst in the past. We partnered with Momentum to do these surveys to understand the pulse of what's going on in the workplace when it comes to diversity, when it comes to gender and these issues. It's been very hard for a lot of companies to get people back into the office. It's been challenging to motivate those employees, to connect with those employees. And we've been really committed to doing these studies and also these surveys to understand what's going on. Um, you know, we've done some work in the past about understanding how companies are reacting to Roe v. Wade. How are companies managing things like whether or not women um, may be more resistant than men to come back into the workforce? How do you make sure um, that women aren't, aren't, aren't left out of promotions because of that? So we work with an amazing team across digital and TV to figure out the right surveys to do and the right way to amplify the data that's coming out of other um, organizations, such as there's a McKinsey Lean-In uh, uh, survey uh, that we look at every year as well. And so you, you mentioned the way people are getting news is changing and it's changing rapidly. Um, there's just so much fragmentation in terms of the new industry with, and, and trusts in newspapers and other institutions are hitting a new low. So when you think about it, what, what are some of the consequences of having such vastly different versions of the news and, and people stop trusting the institutions that, that used to give context for some of the news, right? 
I mean, that's why I love being at CNBC because CNBC is unbiased. It's straight news. There's no fluff. It's really the news that people need to know about and, and they care about because it affects their investments. Um, but I think that, I mean, as a media reporter, I see that the landscape is increasingly fragmented. And what's surprising to me is not just that the TV landscape is fragmented, but that people are increasingly getting their news from online sources. So that means not websites. I'm talking about social media. What we've seen, especially since the 2016 election, is that platforms such as Facebook and Twitter and now TikTok are incredibly powerful for the dissemination of news. And if you talk to younger people, they're getting their news on TikTok. So as a reporter covering the media space, what I've seen is that these platforms are now working really hard to tamp down on misinformation. So there's one thing to talk about perspectives in, in news um, and, and whether or not different news organizations come at stories from different angles, but this has nothing to do with that. This is about misinformation. And Meta, parent company of Facebook, recently announced that they had found some disinformation and misinformation campaigns. There have been a bunch that were run out of Russia, but they found some new ones out of China. Um, so I think it's just interesting to look at the fact that we're not even talking about fragmentation. We're talking about these platforms that are new and really fighting to stay ahead of misinformation campaigns that might be run by foreign actors. Yeah, and it's a hard thing to stay on top of. And that is really impacting the news that people are getting, and they're disrupting the news. Do you want to talk about your disruptors list for a minute too? Yes. So one of my favorite things that I do at CNBC um, that is separate from my day-to-day -day is I created this list called the Disruptor 50 list. Now, 10 years ago, actually now about 11 years ago, I was reporting on the, the Facebook IPO. And as I was watching this company get ready to transition from, from being a startup to being a public company, I realized that these innovative startups are really important for our viewers who are investors to understand and important for them to understand before they go public. You know, CNBC, of course, wants to focus on public companies and that totally makes sense. But I realized there was a framework we could create that would look at these private startups before they go public and put them in the context of what are the companies that are either disrupting the current giants, disrupting the status quo, or they're on track to be the next giants, the next behemoths. So we created this list that looks at private venture-backed companies. Most of them are venture-backed and they're using technology to disrupt different industries. So we've had companies on this list, such as Uber and Airbnb. We've had SpaceX. We've had ed tech companies like Coursera, companies in the retail space. But to me, what's so fascinating about these companies is they're each using technology to change their industry. And now I would argue Every industry is a tech industry. Every company is a tech company because technology is so essential to every piece of the business ecosystem. It really is. I see that as, as a bank for sure. All right, so shifting gears a little bit, I want to congratulate you on your new book, When Women Lead. And as a woman leader, and also someone who's constantly inspired by you and other amazing women leaders, I am really excited to read it. So talk a little bit about what compelled you to write this book during the pandemic and, uh, and the inspiration, sort of how did you come up with it? Well, actually, the combination of my two projects at CNBC, 
it was the combination of my closing the gap work and also Disruptor 50. Because with Disruptor 50, I got to interview these amazing, inspiring entrepreneurs who were creating these sometimes crazy seeming companies to change the world. And I saw in interviewing them that there were some women, women were of course in the minority, um, but I was always really intrigued by these women who were just doing things entirely their own way. Maybe it was Jennifer Hyman who founded Rent the Runway. And she said, why should we own clothes? We should pay for access to clothes, but not have to worry about clothes ownership. Um, or there's an amazing CEO you may not have heard of, but she's amazing. Her name is Jennifer Holmgren. And she's the CEO of a company called Lanzatech that turns pollution into fuel. And she was doing something that seemed impossible. Um, and many people had told her would be impossible. So I was really struck by the determination and the courage and the ingenuity of these female founders who I was meeting through the Disruptor 50 list. At the same time, I was working on the Closing the Gap coverage and survey after survey, every type of data that came through about female entrepreneurs was reminding me how those women were in a tiny minority. And I kept on getting stuck on this stat. 3% of funding goes to female founders. 3%. 3% is a tiny number. And I kept on thinking to myself, those women not only are exceptions to the rule, they are actually exceptional. And if I could figure out how those women had defied those crazy odds, I mean, it's hard for anyone to start a business. I mean, being an entrepreneur is an incredibly challenging thing for anyone. But if I could figure out how those women had taken on the additional challenges of going into male-dominated VC rooms and getting their companies funded and growing them, then I thought those women have lessons that would be valuable for everyone. When you looked at that in a recent interview, I know you mentioned that the leadership styles that women utilize are more effective than men's. And that archetype of old school male leadership skills isn't necessarily effective. I'm fascinated to learn more about that. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, look, I have to, full caveat, everyone leads in their own way, right? There are plenty of incredibly successful female leaders, some who are less so. But the leadership traits that women tend to show based on dozens and dozens of studies that I include in my book, these are leadership traits that are incredibly valuable. Um, I'm talking about empathy, vulnerability, um, a communal management or leadership style, which means bringing in perspectives from across an organization. Female leaders are more likely to have teams that are diverse. They're more likely to invest in mentorship of these teams. These are all things that would be hugely valuable for male leaders as well, but it is women who are more likely to lead in these ways. But what I actually think has happened during the period that I wrote this book is the pandemic has shed light on the fact that these characteristics like empathy, which may have been considered a weakness until very, very recently, and by some people probably is still considered a weakness. Empathy is an essential trait for leaders to connect with their direct reports and their entire teams, and also to connect with people around them, their customers, their counterparties in negotiations who are having entirely different circumstances as we all navigate these crazy uncertain times, whether it was the pandemic or recession fears or inflation. And, and I think one of the things you also talk about is why it's so important for female leaders to focus on and utilize their unique characteristics and approaches and to celebrate them and it, how some of the leaders discovered that they were strengths, but really not thinking they maybe were at first, right? Yes. I mean, I've talked to so many women who said that they spent decades trying to act like a man to succeed in business. And I'm curious to know if you felt the same way, but they thought there was one model of what 
leadership looked like. And it was a guy in a suit and women, many of them told me they used to dress in, in dark colored suits so they would fit in. One woman even told me she tried to speak with a low voice so she would be taken seriously because she has a higher and quieter voice. And these women realized that this just wasn't authentic to them. And the w- women who I interviewed in this book who were successful, they succeeded because they said, I'm not going to lead in those ways. That's just not going to work for me. I'm going to figure out what it is that I'm really good at. And I'm going to build and develop that characteristic. No one I've ever met came out of the gate an effective, successful leader. I sort of assume people would have innate qualities, but the reality is that anyone who's really successful has to develop and hone their qualities. And the women I found who were most successful were the ones who said, okay, here's who I really am. Here's what I love. Here's what I'm good at. I think of Katrina Lake, who has an amazing talent. She's an amazing talent magnet. She attracted senior executives to come work for her at Stitch Fix from massive companies like Netflix and Walmart. And she just said, I was really humble about what I knew and didn't know. And I wanted people to come build with me. So she figured out how to identify her strengths and what her strengths were not and use that to her advantage to attract these amazingly you know, senior people who are older than her and a lot more experienced from other companies. So I just found time after time that trying to fit into a box just is a big waste of time and that you're far more effective if you can lead in ways that are authentic to you. And that way you can sort of unlock these superpowers. Here's what I'm good at. Let me get better at that thing and use it to my advantage. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And then we're surround yourself by people who have some of the other traits that you think are important. Yes, you don't need to be good at everything. And and by the way, if you're humble about what you're not good at, you're more likely to attract people who can compliment you. Yeah, exactly. So you did, I know you interviewed 120 people and you kind of gathered around the 60 um, stories from really incredible women entrepreneurs. You talked about Katrina, but what about some of the other, I know you interviewed Gwyneth Paltrow, Whitney, you mentioned Whitney Wolfhard, Lena Lena Waithe, many others. So talk about what what was the interview process like and, and some of your other favorite stories I'm sure people would love to hear. Well, the interview process was awesome. On one hand, it was the pandemic and it was a crazy dark time, but I was very lucky to be at home with my family. And I felt like this was also an amazing window to get to talk to these female leaders when they were grappling with the hardest leadership challenges that they'd ever that they could never have expected they were so crazy during the pandemic. And I'm sure you felt the same as a leader. So I took advantage of the fact that everyone was at home and people didn't really have other plans. And I asked people to do Zoom interviews with me. And I felt like there was actually something really special about talking to people in that time because everyone had a moment to take a step back and reflect reflect on what was important to them, reflect on why they were doing things a certain way, and to really think about who they were and what mattered to them. And so as a result, I feel like I had an opportunity to have really intimate conversations with people who, some of whom I hadn't met before. Um, I remember once I was going back and fact-checking something with someone And the woman told me, she's like, oh my God, I can't believe I was that intimate with you. That's such a personal (laughs) story. And I said, well, do you, do you not want to share? And she said, no, I just, I must've been really reflective during, during that crazy month when so much was happening. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think so there was this opportunity to get people when they're really thinking about um, who they were. And, you know, before the pandemic, we were also busy jumping from one thing to another. Maybe you don't have as much time to stop and think. Um, So I started by talking to VCs and asking them who these women were, who they thought were 
amazing and defying the odds and doing things in different ways um, and maybe changing the game. And so each person I talked to referred me to five other people. And there was this real generosity of even the women I interviewed, the CEOs would say, oh my God, you have to talk to this woman I met at a conference. She's so cool. I'd love to know her whole story. So a lot of sort of passing along this baton of, of trying to sh share these stories of remarkable women. Um, so some of these women had led IPOs and then a bunch of these women are still running private companies. So I think about Toyin Ajayi, who's the CEO of a company called City Block Health. It has grown massively during the pandemic because it is offering healthcare services to the people who are most in need and often struggling within the healthcare system. And what they're doing, and this is so valuable, particularly in the context of what happened over the past couple of years, is they're not just trying to treat people at an emergency room and send them home. They're trying to figure out why some people keep on returning time after time to the emergency room which means that they're not getting healthier necessarily and they're a huge weight on the healthcare system. So what she determined is that it's more valuable to treat people in their homes, shift the power dynamic. Doctors shouldn't have the power, patients should have the power. Treat people in their homes and also help them with other things, social services. Maybe they need housing. Maybe they need help with other social services. So she exemplifies this characteristic of what I call seeing, seeing the, the, the forest instead of the tree of trying to treat the big picture of someone's overall health rather than just putting a Band-Aid on a problem and sending them out the door of an emergency room. That's incredible. This book isn't just written for women. And so talk about how you want this book to be informational and important for men as well. Well, I think we've talked a lot about great male leaders, right? There are amazing books like Good to Great. Nearly every leader in Good to Great is a man, but we haven't looked at great female leaders. And I think there are amazing lessons to be taken from these women who have defied the odds. Anyone who could defy the types of odds that these women have faced they are exceptional and they have massive lessons for anyone about, about resilience, about ingenuity, about how to grow and manage teams. And so I hope that men read this book and they understand that these are key leadership traits that will help them be more successful in the workforce. If you look at so many challenges right now, managing younger workers, dealing with hybrid work, all of these issues, the characteristics that women demonstrate are going to be essential for men and women to take their companies to the next level. So Kelly, to turn the table and ask you some questions as a phenomenal female leader yourself, I have to ask, you led with such great success in a male-dominated world. What are the characteristics and strategies that you have deployed that have been so effective for you? You know, I think... Um... Well, first of all, thank you for those really kind words. But I think I think what I've done is always, you know, when I started out, I always made sure you've got to know what you're doing, right? So the details and and know your stuff that that goes without saying. Um, and then then I think it was just making sure that I was um, speaking up uh, with my ideas and making sure I found a way to be a little different. So you know, in in a bigger business, picking businesses to fix, and then you kind of become known as the fixer who can can turn something around. And then I think some of the qualities that you bring out in your book resonated with me, like, you know, that empathy or being authentic. I think if you, if you tell people the why and you, and they understand where you're going, they wanted to follow. So if people want to follow you, you can really get anything done. And it seems like empathy is a big piece of that. Um, so I have to ask though, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that you found problems to fix because then you show your value in a very intense way. But did you ever lead in a way that didn't feel authentic to you? Did it take you a while to find that voice? I think it did. I think it, it, it you know, when I started in the financial industry, you know, 30 plus years ago, 
you were expected, you were even expected to dress a certain way. I mean, women were not allowed to wear pants when I started. And if you wore a skirt, you definitely had to have stockings on, which I hated. Um, And so you felt like you had to act a certain way. And I definitely have sat in those, you know, those meetings and, and thought about, you know, how do I conform to this? You know, I also studied foreign service languages like you did. And so you become very good at adapting to different cultures. And I lived in Argentina early on. So, um, but then I found that sometimes that adaptability was one of my superpowers. So, but you can't go too far. And you, you, when you do have a good feeling for EQ, when you, you know, you can kind of feel what other people are feeling. Sometimes you need to block it and say, I know what that person's feeling, take it into consideration, but just still plow forward with whatever your idea or comment is. And I think you have to get used to doing that. You know, what's, uh, sometimes your greatest strength can be your straight, greatest weakness, I find. But so not letting the empathy overpower your decision-making. You still have to decide. You have to move fast. You have to sometimes make tough decisions. And that that's something that I think I learned over my career. The other thing that I think you mentioned that is also really important is how to take feedback. Because I think that early in my career, I would maybe obsess about feedback. And then as I got you know, I did more, I learned more, you advanced, you just learned that that's actually a real gift. If somebody's going to tell you what you can do better, take it and decide what you're going to do better. You don't have to take hundred percent of what they say, but don't be offended by it. Actually, it's a, it really is a gift. Yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, it's definitely been very valuable for me. I love feedback. I'm always asking for feedback. Um, now, one thing, there's a lot of data about how female leaders are more likely to have diverse teams. And I saw that you have a very diverse team. How has your leadership at CNB shaped the type of team that you have? I I always have had, a. have always left every business I've run with a much more diverse team overall and leadership team than when I found it. I think it's important. I, um, I like to get a diversity of views and thought and you need a diversity of different types of people around you to, I think, to make better decisions. So I think it's my, I do like to get a lot of input. I do like to look at data. I do like I, I have more of a collaborative leadership style. I'm not a command and control, do this, do that. I want to get input because I really think I'm going to make a better decision. And I think because I'm I'm used to listening to um, people, I think it does help on the diversity side, attract more diverse because they know they're going to be listened to, understood. I may go a different way, but they'll always feel listened to, even if I make a decision the other way. And then I find it's it's more, they're more likely to follow um, but I also do have a role, like if we're, you know, we're going left. So you, you got to get on the bus and go left. If you want to go right, get off the bus and go right. But you got to get on the bus because we've made this decision now. So I'm I'm pretty stra- strong on that. But I do like to listen when I'm making those decisions. Fantastic. Well, all so valuable. And, and that it all ties together, adaptability, communal leadership, decisiveness. Um, you exemplify so many of those traits. Oh, you're so kind to say that. Well, I am going to be looking at this and learning a lot more through all these inspiring stories. So what's what would you say after all, I mean, you've meticulously researched this book. What is one key piece of advice that you would give everybody listening um, about being a successful female leader? Well, I would say for men also, to I would say my advice for both men and women to be successful leaders by embracing the traits of female leaders, I would say, catch yourself in your bias. Everyone has it, whether it's men or women, we all, and sometimes for women, they're harder on themselves because they do have bias and pattern matching. So I think that's very important. Everyone has bias. You just got to acknowledge it and try to figure it out. I think it's really important to know the data about the challenges that you're going to face. This book lays out a lot of the obstacles 
women face in business. And I don't include them to be discouraging. I include them because if you know how big a mountain is, it's easier to scale it. And so I think it's really important to lay out your obstacles. The other thing I would say is know that something that you might've always thought was a weakness, whether it's being an introvert or really, uh, you know, like hating to run meetings, but wanting to, to bring together the ideas of a team, but not wanting to be the one to speak up. These things are not not bad. They're just characteristics of who you are and you can use those characteristics to your advantage. So I would say everyone has superpowers. Don't think that your inner characteristics are ever bad. They're just part of you and you can build them and grow them to your advantage. But then I also just want to point out these three things that are so essential. Empathy, vulnerability, and gratitude. One of the most surprising studies that I write about in the book is this idea that if you have gratitude and if you practice gratitude, you think about things that you're grateful for, that actually enables you to do more long-term thinking, long-term planning. And in a world where everything is about short-term gratification, long-term thinking is so valuable in business. So those would be my takeaways. But also I'm optimistic. I think that companies and investors will increasingly embrace diversity and have more female leaders because there's so much data. The data all points to the value of diversity in business. So I think people want to make money. They're going to start paying attention to the numbers. And I believe that the dollars will follow. I love that. That's a very hopeful message. And is there one thing that you hope that male leaders take from this book is, I I, you know, definitely those three characteristics, but anything specific just that they know the data maybe? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the male leaders I've talked to were shocked by the numbers. When I told them that in 2021, 80% of all VC dollars went to startups who had all male teams, not co-ed, not only female, all male teams, the men were shocked. And I think understanding the numbers will enable them to have a more sort of balanced, even-handed view of the world that we're living in and also will help them catch themselves if they are going to do pattern matching and buys. I sort of have this idea that, you know, investors are always looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg, right? And, uh, you know, that for VC investors or investors in public companies are looking for a CEO who reminds them of Jeff Bezos or Howard Schultz. Like they're looking for that pattern. There's this natural instinct to try to find patterns. But I want to show in this book that there are so many examples of successful female leaders. So we shouldn't be looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg or Howard Schultz. We should be looking for someone who, based on the numbers, based on the ideas, not based on the pattern and the images and the stereotype, but based on the facts, is a good leader. Yep, that's that's great. And so it definitely seems like one of your goals in writing this is to teach and to help others recognize the commonalities and see that. And so I know, I'm sure you learned a lot from each of the women you were interviewing by writing this book. How has this book helped you think about your career and the future of your career? Have you set any new goals or? Well, I think it's definitely made it easier for me to do my job. You know, as a journalist, I do face bias. And um, there was this experience that happened when I realized the tools in my book were not just, that the data in my book was a tool. And um, after I did an interview, it happened to be with a female CEO, I got a phone call from a very senior male um, communications executive And he was commenting on my interview when we were talking about me maybe booking an interview with someone he worked with. And he said, your tone in that interview was really mean. And you know me, Kelly, I'm a nice person. I I care about being a nice person. I'm tough in my interviews. I've been called tough before. I've been called focused or relentless. I've never been called mean, or maybe I have, but I just forgot about it. So in this occasion, I thought mean. 
And I had a moment where I panicked. I thought, was I mean? Oh my gosh, was I mean? I wouldn't want to be mean. That's not who I am. And then I caught myself and I realized that I just read a study about how women are more likely to be criticized based on their style more so than their substance. And if women don't act warm and nurturing, they're judged for it. So I said to him, mean, would you have given the same feedback to one of my male colleagues? I thought it was really fair. And I said it totally calmly and he was shocked. And he said, you know, I I guess I would have expected it of him. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I would have expected it of one of them, uh, but uh, I'll think about it. And it was that moment where instead of going back and reviewing the tape and worrying that I hadn't done the right kind of job or the right kind of interview, I could have confidence in what I had done. I know what I'm doing. And I think so many women suffer from imposter syndrome um, when it's not necessary. And I decided I wasn't going to waste my time worrying about my performance when I knew I had done a good job. My bosses knew I had done a good job. Lots of people had emailed me telling I had done done a good job in that interview. And I think that having the data and knowing that I was going to face bias made it easier for me not to, A, let it get me down, and B, try to figure out what of his feedback actually might be useful. Was there something valuable in what he was saying? So it both enabled me to take the useful part of the feedback and then also not get bogged down by the stuff that actually had nothing to do with me. And you also taught him something. I think that's important, right? I hope so. We'll see. Maybe maybe he'll think about (laughs) it. Um, But I also think you point out something else that I think the data in your book can do um, is to give people, co- make sure women have confidence. Cause that's, I think the most important, that's the one place where if I were to say, based on some of the things I've seen over my career, sometimes I don't have the confidence. Like imposter syndrome is everything. That's has crazy. If you don't have the confidence, think of all the other women who don't have confidence. There is such amazing research about how women who are leaders rank themselves lower than their employees rank them on their effectiveness. And then men who rank their own effectiveness and then employees rank them, men rank themselves higher than their employees rate them. So based on the data, women are doing better than they realize that they are. And so I have a lot more confidence. I think I'm much better um, equipped to distinguish real feedback from random bias and um, really much more able to take useful feedback and use it to iterate and keep on going. I mean, it's it's so, and also I'm just inspired by these women. And I feel like if these women can do it, considering the, the challenges that they face, I mean, I think of this one CEO, Mina Sankaran, who narrowly escaped dying in an avalanche on Mount Everest. And she was an Indian immigrant who had gone to to trek Mount Everest. She came back to the U.S. and she said, I'm going to start a water company. She had to boil water to survive on Mount Everest to survive that avalanche. In the aftermath of the avalanche, I should say. When she got back, she said, water's the thing. I'm going to fix the water problem. That uh, There's water safety. There's water loss. I'm going to create a company that does that. Such passion and determination and ingenuity. So yes, I have more confidence because I've seen all the data. But I also know that there are women out there who are doing amazing things. And if I have a tough day, I can be inspired by them. That's such 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 a great way to end this. It's so inspiring, all the stories you have. Maybe there's another book in your future. You still have a I hope so. It was really fun to write this one. Well, I know you're about to uh, to launch to, to do a lot around this one. And I am thank you for taking the time. You're really busy for being on our podcast. I know everybody's going to love all the stories and will love the book. So go out and buy the book, Why Women Lead. And congratulations on writing this. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's such a treat to talk to you. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you. 